Hello, this is Joe Abercrombie. And grim tidings unto you all. You are listening to the Grim Tidings podcast. Our guest today is not only one of the finest authors working in fantasy fiction today, but also accidentally gave birth to a squalling new subgenre. When it came to the creation of the Grim Tidings podcast, your podcast for all things grim, dark, and more, the question was asked if we could have just one author on the show, who would it be? Obviously, the answer was Michael R. Fletcher, but after a round of who the fuck is that, we realized that there could only be one true answer. And truly, the grimdark gods have grimaced down upon us this day. As the author of six adult novels and three young adult novels, his fiction has captured the hearts of readers across the globe. His debut novel, The Blade Itself, dropped in 2006 to usher in the First Law Trilogy, and was followed up by Before They Are Hanged and the concluding volume, Last Argument of Kings. Breaking from the series structure, our guest then released a series of standalone novels set in the same story universe. Best Served Cold, The Heroes, and Red Country demonstrated his ability to diversify his storytelling. Our guest's evolution as a literary force to be reckoned with continued in 2014 as he burst into the young adult reader's market with the Shattered Sea series. Since then, Half a King, Half the World, and Half a War have found both critical and commercial success. During those years, our guest also wrote and released a number of short stories set in the First Law universe that appeared in various anthologies, including Unbound, Rogues, Dangerous Women, Swords and Dark Magic, and more. One of those short stories, by the name of Tough Times All Over, just so happened to pick up a Locus Award for the best novelette of 2015. His newest book, Sharp Ends, features 13 short stories set in the first law universe. Sharp Ends drops worldwide on April 26. He has three British Fantasy Award nominations, seven Locus Award nominations, including two wins, five David Gamel Award nominations, a finalist for both the Compton Crook Stephen Tall Memorial Award, as well as the John W. Campbell Award. A husband, a father of three, and a man who most assuredly holds and deserves his current Twitter handle as Lord Grimdark. A Sunday Times and New York Times best-selling author, Skyping in from Bath, UK, we may call him Papa Joe, but the rest of the world knows him as the one, the only, Mr. Joe Abercrombie. And that's all we've got time for today. Thank you for <laughs> tuning in. Uh, yeah, it's a, what a magnificent resume that is. <laughs> Field of, of lost awards and broken promises. Oh. George R. R. Martin is not available, so here I am. Thanks, guys. <laughs> When life gives you lemons, you get Joe Abercrombie. That's it, exactly. Yeah. Well, Joe, I just wanted to officially uh, welcome you to the show. It's definitely great to have you on, and uh, you may consider it a podcast interview, but at least for Phil and I, you are crossing off a bucket list item for the both of us. We are definitely honored to have you on the show. So thank you so much for taking a, uh, the time away from your writing schedule or whatever you do uh, to join us today. We very much appreciate it. Well, you should be aware that you know there are perhaps 50 words of high-quality fiction that will now never be written. <laughs> As a result of, Shit. of my appearing on the show, think about it that way. Yeah, uh, the grim dark karma will bite us in the ass, <clears throat> no doubt. Well, Joe, we are here today to talk about Sharp Ends. It's the newest book that you have coming out. Uh, we're, we'll have time to hit on a few uh, subjects today, but Sharp Ends is definitely what we wanted to start off with. It's a collection of thirteen shorts set in the First Law universe. If you could mm. tell us a bit about how this collection came together and what readers can expect from these short stories found within. Well, um, it's a collection of all the fiction that I've written uh, in the first law world, all the short fiction that I've written. Um, so 
over the years, uh, various desperate editors have come to me uh, needing to fill a slot in a book because some better writer has dropped out or some other such problem has occurred. And uh, they've asked me to write a short, a short story for them. And so I've written a few short stories for those, those kind of multi-author uh, anthologies. Uh, then I've also written some stories now and then for special editions of the various books for promotional purposes. And so the idea always was over time that I'd collect all these stories together and add a few new original ones um, and eventually produce a collection. And, and that has kind of come together round about now. And what inspired the, uh, the title of Sharp Ends as the, as the name for the collection? Ah, it's an ingenious triple <laughs> meaning, perhaps. Oh. Uh, I've often thought that the entire purpose of the world was to demonstrate my own cleverness, and therefore this title plays into that quite nicely, uh, because uh, swords have a sharp end on them, and there are oh. many sharp-ended weapons within these stories. But not just that, there's also sometimes clever endings to the stories and twists and stuff so they kind of have a sharp end to the <laughs> stories oh, yeah? yeah so you know and then there might even be more meanings if someone else can think of some kind of <laughs> along those lines yeah it's uh, references both the violence within the stories and the ingenious new way i've gone about writing them <laughs> Which some might think is similar to the way that other writers have written short stories. Well, I, I, I got a chance to read the short story Two's Company, which is available on Tor.com. That's yeah. Tor, Tor.com, everyone. Go check yeah. that out. Tor.com. Yeah. Tor.com. Um, what's the website? It's Tor.com, I think. Oh, ah. Thank you. Yeah. T-O-R.com. And you can read that story there free, along with a range of other high-quality stories and also nonfiction. So in this new story, you introduce two new characters, and I'm going to pronounce them the way I believe they are pronounced. Javre. Javre. The Lioness of Hoskop, and then Shevadia. Yeah, Shevadia. Shevadia, okay. These two are kind of like your version of Fafford and the Grey Mauser you, you mentioned. That's right. The, this, the stories that are in there fit into a few different categories, so... Some were stories that I wrote very much to kind of accompany a given book, uh, to try out some characters that were going to be in that book or to, you know, add a, add a little extra chapter or an extra point of view to a book. And then others were ones that were written with a certain theme in mind to fit into uh, a collection with other writers. And then there's also four or five that feature these two characters, Java and Shevardia, who are, as you say, my kind of version of a classic sword and sorcery buddy pairing odd couple you know a bit like Fafford and the Grey Mouser that was my idea a female Fafford and the Grey Mouser and so the stories are there kind of misadventures alternate with you know familiar characters and uh familiar places and backstories and sideshows to the various the various books and so they form a kind of central thread to this collection that hopefully keeps it kind of moving and feels like there's some continuity there yeah, I think I think the, these uh, stories, if they're all similar thematically or tone-wise, uh, they have that your trademark dark humor, but they're also very fun, also the it's playful kind of stories. So it's not just uh, bloody action, but there's also a lot of comedic elements to the stories as well. Do you see yourself continuing to write short short fiction about these characters in the future, or is there a possibility of a novel featuring the characters? 
I mean, I see myself more than likely writing more short stories with them. Um, I, th I think, you know, the idea was always to have some characters who would easily and naturally produce some short stories in the way that, so, you know, characters like Faffle and the Grey Mouse are, I don't know if you, you'd ever imagine a, a novel with them. You know, yeah, they're short yeah. story characters. There's something about them that makes for those episodic kind of elements. That's what they're known for. And so the idea was to produce some, you know, some characters who have these episodic adventures that would work well for short stories. So the idea is not to necessarily put them into a, into a novel. I mean, they do have a kind of a, a lighter, more comedic, more fantastical tone, I guess, than, than some of the books have in order to fit into that sort of sword and sorcery style. I wanted them to feel like classic sword and sorcery, I suppose. So, yeah, they have a, they have a slightly different feel to, uh, you know, my books, I think. Um, but obviously part of the same world, part of the same milieu, as they say. I think having Weirin of Bly, I think having him in this opening story is a real treat for the fans because he seems to be a big fan favorite, and I think a lot of people are excited to see him appear. Yeah, and there are a few others. Uh, I mean, there, there are definitely a lot of other well-known characters in the in the story. So you know, there's one there's one story with uh, with Logan Nine Fingers long oh. before the blade itself happens. There's a story with uh, with Glockter when he's still a magnificent colonel of cavalry. So there's a few stories that feature little bits of backstory of uh, some familiar faces. There's a Nicomo Koska story. There's a few that are in there. Is there any yeah. one story in the collection that's a particular favorite? I don't know that there is in a way. I mean, I think that there's always some that you feel work better than others. I mean, because they're obviously, you know, they're written at a lot of different times for a lot of different purposes and some may have been written faster than others. <laughs> I mean, they're all of an extremely high quality. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, some, I think, when you look back at them a year later, you think, yeah, it could have taken more time. And others, you think, oh, this is, you know, better than I was expecting. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they, they vary and they're, they're different in tone. So I think, you know, as always, there'll be readers who like some better than others and who are drawn to certain characters more than others. But I, you know, I'm, I'm pleased with how it reads as a as a collection, given that it's, you know, they weren't ever necessarily written with the purpose of forming a coherent whole, if you like. They're a set of individual stories. I think having these ones with Java and Shevardia give it a, a sense of having a theme, having a connecting thread is sort of helpful. And, and I like the way that it reads together. So it has some inherent cohesion. I, I guess your uh, brilliance precedes you. <laughs> let's hope. Let's, let's hope. I've noticed that a lot of fans seem to like how you, you weave characters in and out of your stories uh, through different timelines, so you may you may have like a, uh, a story that's way further down in the timeline of the first Law World, or you may have something that's before the events of the first series. Even you jump kind of around to different timelines. I, I think writers, especially that listen to our show, would be interested to know how you keep up with the timeline to maintain consistency between the different periods of the world. I'm not one for massive rafts of, of, of backstory material stuff, you know, of character sheets and things. But, I mean, I have a, I have a timeline. A big master document, and it has uh, a date down the left-hand side, and it has a whole load of columns for different, different characters and different books and characters that are relevant in books. And so that helps to keep, you know, the fundamental facts of things like how old key characters are, when things are happening, when things have happened in the past... And, you know, that help gives me some opportunity to keep the basics straight. And a lot of the rest of it is really just remembering and keeping it in your mind. But also, usually when I finish a book, 
or when I'm coming towards the end of the editing, I'll read through all the old books as well just to make sure I haven't made any howling errors. And of course, the more books you write, the more there is to keep straight. And so when I wrote Red Country, I, I got one of the characters' names wrong. I got, I got two Inquisitors mixed up, and I had used the name in Red Country. I'd used the name of a guy who was killed in Before They Were Hanged, which was, would have been a bit of a mistake because I meant it to be a different character. I just got the two names mixed up. But luckily, I caught that one. And then I also <laughs> realized that two characters who appeared in a scene together actually knew each other and had a whole past and history together, which I'd forgotten about. And so there was this strange way in this scene that they just seemed to blank each other, these two people, long <laughs> known to each other. And so I suddenly realised, oh, they know each other, I need to rewrite this. But, you know, that gave me a different in and a couple of little throwaway lines suddenly had this much deeper relevance then because of, of the history and what had gone before. So it can be a bit of a weight to carry, all that massive backstory. And going back to work in the First World World after, after some time away does mean reacquainting yourself with a whole mass of, of detail and, and stuff. And when I was writing Red Country, I did feel slightly that weight of, oh, God, right, what's this character done before? Uh, I've mentioned this place before. Is it geographically correct and all these things? When I went to write Half a King, it was a nice sense of release uh, to be able to start something completely new where there was no weight and no encumbrance. Uh, but it does, at the same time, give you all this stuff to draw on, all this kind of wealth of, of backstory and... I love how things that you've seen before, in, in the first book, say, in The Blade itself, there'll be, there'll be characters mentioned as, as myth and things that happened in the past, things that happened in the recent past. When you get to something like Red Country, you know, a lot of those things that happened in the recent past, those names that are mentioned, those characters you kind of hear of in the distance, they're people you know and people you've seen and things that have happened before the reader in other books. And I think there's a really uh, powerful quality to that, that feeling of knowing the world and seeing the people come in and out of the stories and, and seeing how their relationships shift and develop over time. I find that really quite a, a fascinating exercise, I guess. This collection actually covers most of your timeline so far because Some Desperado is based during the Red Country era. And uh, your first story, Two's Company, would be before the events of the heroes, I'm assuming. Um, or even yeah. dur during the, the first series, because Bethod is... Still King, uh, I believe. Yeah, I mean, they're arranged in, uh, in, in chronological order, so um, they follow a, t a timeline up to a point. Some of them happen at the same time as some of the books. So, um, yeah, Two's Company is happening at the same time as the, as the Blade itself is going on, I think. But the first mm. story with the one with Glockter takes place, you know, maybe seven or eight years before the Blade itself. And the last story um, takes place after Red Country. So they cover the whole span and, uh, and you know, fill in... It wouldn't, it, I wouldn't say they necessarily fill in gaps in a big sense, but, you know, they, they fill in little points of data around other places, other characters, other, other things that are happening uh, outside of the books. Well, I have to say, it seems that uh, no matter the word count, Joe, I think you've really demonstrated the ability to write a great story, no matter what the size is. Do you, do you think you have a preference over what length of story you prefer to write compared to, say, a novel or, or a short story? Well, I mean, it's certainly the case that short ones are easier. <laughs> They're quicker. <laughs> um, you know, great, huge 200,000-word books take a long time. And uh, when I came to write Half a King, the idea was, you know, very much can I boil down the approach to, to produce something that has, you know, some of the same sense of epicness, some of the same qualities, but in a much shorter, tighter, more focused kind of package. 
And I think you can up to a point. You'll never quite get that kind of scale and scope you get out of a huge big book. But, you know, it, they were quick to write. I was sort of worried that uh, the work that would come with developing new characters and a kind of slightly new voice and a uh, new way of working, a new world, all those things would take, you know, a lot of time. And so Half a King, although it's, you know, a third of the length uh, of, my, of my longest books, uh, I thought it might take, you know, two thirds of the time. But it didn't. It took seven months, eight months to write. Really, you know, was quite quick. And that's it's kind of a nice feeling to uh, not have a vast project stretching ahead of you. So, I mean, I'm starting now a trilogy set in the first world world again, bigger books again, and uh, that is quite a daunting task to see stretching ahead of you thinking, yeah, I mean, this is, this is four years' work, five years' work. That's a big job. It's a significant commitment of time and energy, whereas, you know, a, a book like Harper King, you can kind of think, I can imagine squeezing one of those out. I mean, it's still a, it's still a, big, it's still a big project, and it's still, you know, you've got to be involved and uh, it's, it's a major commitment of time and energy but nothing like the same so I enjoy writing you know at that slightly shorter length I think you know my natural length is not short stories I think I can do them and and it's it's taken some time to work out how to do them in a way but I tend to write kind of big scenes rather than I think ultra punchy short stories of the kind that a really great short story with its own shape and its own twist I don't think that's really my area of expertise. Uh, I'm better at novel length. It doesn't have to be huge novel length, but I think novel length suits me better. And, of course, the market for novel length stuff is vastly better than the market for short fiction these days. So sure. short fiction is always a little hard to justify simply because, you know, 10,000-word short story, you know is going to not only make you less money but reach a much smaller audience probably than will 10,000 words of a novel. So, you know, and a collection is always going to sell less than a novel will, almost definitely. So it's worth doing. But, uh, yeah, I think novels are where most of my energy will go for sure. Could you give us any kind of exclusive Grim Tidings podcast uh, news about your new series that you can only give to us and not give to anyone else? Well, I mean, yeah, if you promise not to tell anyone else. <laughs> okay. We, I promise. You promise. Um, yeah. No, I could do that. Yeah. Yeah, I could tell you some something. It's um, it's a set of books. It's uh, three books, probably. <laughs> um, they will contain pages. They're adult books. They're set in the First World World. They're set after Red Country, so they're kind of set uh, about 20 years after The Blade itself, or 20 years after Last Argument of King. So long enough for there to be a kind of uh, new generation of, of characters. And they, they kind of focus on the Union again, uh, largely, and on the North also in part. And uh, I guess, you know, there's a new set of characters who are children or of the generation of children of some of the characters that we saw in the First Law. And so many of those characters we saw in the First Law are still looming large in the background. I guess in the way that someone like Archelector Salt, you know, looms over... The first law. There's now a, another generation of old shits who were young shits when uh, the first law was written. So it's it's kind of a first law, the next generation, maybe. Oh, I always like the next generation. Can't yeah, next generation was a good show. Yeah. What's well, on the? It's on BBC America. The next generation. So well, the, the Brits dig it. I guess is. I guess so. Yeah. No, we do. Well, make it so. <laughs> I was really big into Dragonlance when I was a kid, and I remember really Good being. Meal. 
really I was so hyped when I found out, oh, we get to see Cameron and Tika's kid, and we get to see uh, their twin boys, and we get to see all the kids of all the cool people we saw. I think that's something that's appealing for fans of like Star Wars also. We talk about, we've been talking about Star Wars a lot. I think people are excited. Oh, yeah, really? Because that's not been that popular. I don't understand anything about it. <laughs> An obscure film, Star Wars The Force Awakens. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's a new one, is there? Oh, God. Okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, I think uh, fans of a series such as like The First Law World would be very interested to see uh, how, as you said, the young shits have become old, crusty shits uh, yeah. that have been in the sun for a long time. Exactly. But uh, I think at the same time, you've got to make sure that it's the, the story of the new shits, not the old, in a sense. <laughs> yeah. uh, just as, you know, Salt is an important character in the first law, but he's not the focus of the books. He's not the point of view. And so it's new points of view, but uh, within familiar settings and time has moved on and the nature of the world has moved on. And, uh, you know, the nature of the technology has moved on to a certain degree. So it's a different a different vibe, but I think the idea is to produce something that, you know, in a way has the the same virtues. Yeah, it always is. But it's, uh, I think the idea as well is to, obviously the first law, when I first started writing that, I had, you know, I had a job, I was just, I was messing around really, it was purely for fun. And I spent a lot of time working on the first few chapters, going over those chapters over and over, refining them working out how to write. And as a result, I became very comfortable with those characters, very comfortable with the voices of those characters. And they developed, you know, quite an intense, to me, interesting voice, all of them did. Uh, partly, I think, because I'd grown up with those people, they'd been in my mind a long time, but also because I spent that time to go over and over and, and think a lot about what I was doing. And so... Since the first law, you know, I've, I've been on more of a, more of a, well, I wouldn't say treadmill, but treadmill, writing, you know, having to write new books and, and always thinking about the next book and pushing, pushing books out. Not that I've rushed them out, but, you know, I was, I was pushing through them. With this, I, I want to, you know, have, have the luxury of taking a little bit of time to sit with the characters and live with the characters and, you know, again, go over and over things until they develop a nice, powerful voice before forging ahead also i think um you know a trilogy is very different to writing a standalone book if you're going to deliver on a on a big series or on a, on a set of books i think it helps a lot if you're not having to push those books out quickly one one after another you know for the demands of the marketplace which is just the, the simple fact of how it is being a writer often but uh with the first one i had the luxury of the the second book was half written when I got a deal and and by the time the first book came out the third book was half written so I could revise that first book with a really good knowledge of where I was going and as a result I think it has you know it could it could have more cohesion it could have you know better tighter structure but it would undoubtedly have a much looser worse structure if I'd had to push those books out very quickly so with this trilogy I really want to spend some time getting the first book right and then ideally draft all three before thinking about publishing which means the books will be just superb in their quality <laughs> as you can imagine uh yeah. but you know quality takes time unfortunately the cake half baked is no good i want this cake to be fully baked and so uh the chances are it's going to take me quite a while to actually produce uh another book but hopefully by the time i do produce another book there will be two more wonderful cakes already in <laughs> Which is good Line. news fans, fans of fantasy everywhere, I like to think. Line up the cakes. Get them ready. Oh, yeah. Is it, well, that's def 
definitely exciting. I mean, with the First Law trilogy, as well as um, your follow-up uh, standalones and the Shattered Sea series, I mean, no doubt you have made your stake in uh, fantasy fiction uh, as a whole. From so, I mean, to stake. <laughs> So you are uh, essentially um, with this new series, you are planting your next stake in the fantasy. My uh, reputation is sealed, but this only <laughs> lift it to new heights. Sure, I mean is the that... thing is, um, uh, being a writer is very—it's kind of tough in a way because you're never you're never done. There's always more books to write. Uh, there's always more stuff to do. So you know. When I was writing the first law, that that was the only thing I'd ever thought of doing, you know, as a writer. I'd had this this idea in the back of my mind, oh, I could write a, a fantasy trilogy because I used to, you know, I really enjoyed fantasy, but I felt like I had some new ideas that I could try and bring to it. So that was really what the first law was all about. And then I finally, you know, got a deal to to have it published, and it was published. And I was working on the third book, and I was bringing it all in, and it was going really well. And my editor said to me, "So, what are you doing next?" And I had this horrible moment of realization that you know this was not it there might be another 20 30 40 books in a career i was nearly physically sick uh, as i saw those words stretching away from me into the far future uh, and so you do always have to be kind of looking on to the next thing which is sometimes difficult and a little bit wearying but uh you keep moving for the sake of the readers do you see there any chance of you ever going further back on the timeline, such as like the first Kirkish War? Funnily enough, that's where the, the first story in the in, in the book in the in the collection is. That's exactly what it is. Sweet. It's in, it's in that war with Colonel Lochter going down to the bridge to demonstrate his amazing heroism. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think definitely in in the form of stories and short stories, I never say never to things because you know I don't tend to think a huge number of books ahead. I have a couple of ideas usually, and that's about it. I don't have a whole trunk full of notes in in the attic, and when I reach the end of a book, you know, oh, which of my 600 amazing ideas am I going to develop next? It's not like that for me at all. You know, I have, well, I barely have one idea. I have 10% <laughs> of an idea, and then I start, you know, in a very banal and workmanlike way, starting to plod through the ramifications of this idea and work out bit by bit how things are going to work. So yeah, I kind of fight one war at a time, and, I, and, and so I don't have a load of ideas about what I do in the past of the, of the first law world. I think there's always a, um, it's difficult to go into the past. You know, we were talking about Star Wars earlier. Yeah. The Star Wars prequels have many problems. We've only got an hour, so I mean, we can't. <laughs> but certainly one of the problems is you kind of know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And I think with prequels, unless you have some ingenious idea by which you will reveal something that the audience never knew before there's not a lot of point and it's always going to be diminishing returns it's always going to be enthralled to the big thing that came before it's always an add-on it's never mm. a bigger thing really whereas if you push forward in time you don't know what's going to happen so i don't often see the point of prequels i mean it feels like it's by definition an attempt to kind of milk the thing that was already successful. Don't get me wrong, milking the thing that's already successful can be very good. It's a lot better <laughs> than doing something unsuccessful, that's for sure. But I think there's always a, there's a different kind of risk in doing the same thing over and over. Uh, if you do something wildly different and new, uh, a lot of people may well hate it and they'll shout abuse at you, throw things. 
uh, at conventions and uh, you'll never be heard of again. So that's bad. But also, if you do the same thing over and over, the people won't throw things, but they'll just kind of get bored and they'll join the line of another younger and more attractive author. New ideas. <laughs> and you don't want that either. So I think it's good to keep pushing forward. And uh, prequels always feel like they're kind of going back uh, in the same way as writing. Just, you know, I'm sure I could I could sell, you know, a set of 10 Logan Ninefingers books. Young Logan. <laughs> the Adventures of Young Logan. The Adventures of Young Logan. In fact, you know, that when I first started talking about young adult stuff, that phrase did actually get uttered. Oh, wow. Meeting. How about young Logan? And I was like, yeah, how about this? But, uh, you know, you could do that. And I'm sure people would, would, would probably buy that. And, you know, probably, probably they'd be great as well. But uh, I'd rather move to different new and exciting pastures mm. until uh, I run out of money. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's uh, let's talk about the elephant in the room. No doubt, yes. you've been asked and talked about Grimdark on occasion. Yeah. Uh, your I, your Twitter handle is Lord Grimdark. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. why, why, did I... <laughs> <laughs> why did you choose that one? No. At the time that I did that, it was completely self evidently a joke. It seemed to me because you know at that time. Grimdark, as a word, was where I had seen it used. It wasn't being used very much, but where I had seen it used, it was, you know, purely as a as a way of taking the piss. It was as a criticism. You know, if someone talked about Grimdark, they meant that something was rubbish. Uh, they meant something was so pessimistic and gory and ridiculous and over the top that you could not but laugh at it. You know, it became risible, in effect. So it was always a criticism. So people would say, you know, things along the lines of... Well, Abercrombie's Grimdark, but, you know, Game of Thrones isn't Grimdark because that's good. You know, so that was the difference. Grimdark was something that was bad. And so by calling myself Lord Grimdark, I was hoping to have a hilarious laugh at myself. You know, <laughs> the self-effacing humour, those crazy British. Uh, a bit of that. But it didn't turn out that way because no sooner had I done that than everyone started to take the phrase Grimdark seriously. Nothing to do with me, obviously, but um, it started to become... Uh, a phrase used about a certain style of fantasy that people really liked. So uh, it started to be used about Game of Thrones, for example, and and other such fantasy of the gritty, cynical, dark type, which obviously became quite a significant uh, subclass of epic fantasy, I guess. So yeah, I still find it a. It's not a, a phrase I like a lot. It's not. It's not a, a term that I like. But then it's not up to you what people call you or what you do. It's kind of up to them how they categorise things. And in the end, you know, as with any literary category, if it kind of helps a reader find a book that they like, then that's all the point it needs to have. But I still find it frustrating and a bit silly. Because people, no two people ever mean quite the same thing when they say grimdark. It's very ill-defined. So as a criticism, people will tend to say, well, grimdark is obviously this or grimdark is obviously that. And I'll never use any actual examples of what they mean. So, you know, if they say, you know, Grimdark, is, it, it has no hope, it has no humour, it's incredibly solemn and pompous, you kind of think, well, I, I think my stuff does have humour, so you're not talking about my stuff, are you? Or aren't you? I don't know. So I find, I find it hard to know when I'm being insulted or not. And I quite like to know when I'm being insulted, you know, <laughs> so I can feel properly annoyed about it and lose, lose the relevant amount of writing time of my, my hurt and frustration. That's my feeling on Grimdark. 
do you think you'll ever change your Twitter handle or is that kind of set in as you're going to keep it now that it's been your established name for a significant period of time now? I think once you've got, I don't think you can change it once you've got the blue, the little blue thingy. Oh, you got the blue thingy. <laughs> I'm not using okay. the blue thingy. No. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to lose the blue Everyone thingy. wants a blue thingy. Don't right. take that away. You can't take that away from me. <laughs> so no, I'll probably stick with it now. Uh, you know, it is what it is. It is what it is. Thanks for listening to part one of our interview with Joe Abercrombie. You can hear part two of our chat in just one week. Find us online at facebook.com slash the Grim Tidings podcast or on Twitter at Grim Dark Fiction. Download the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean. And if you like the show, be sure to share it and leave a review. Plenty of great guests to come your way over the coming months, including Steven Erickson, Richard A. Knack, Delilah Dawson, Robin Sullivan, Peter Newman, Raymond E. Feist, Brian Stavely, and many more. Don't miss an episode. Be sure to subscribe today. On behalf of co-host Philip Overby and myself, Rob Matheny, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time, right here on the Grim Tidings Podcast. podcasting.